This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about our faith, um, what we believe, why we believe it, questions about things going on in your lives. Uh, All you have to do is call me, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. I tell you every day, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use your hands-free feature of your phone and the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Well, it's Tuesday. I don't have anything going on, so I can get right to the questions. I will say that I had a, 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 a lunch, brunch, uh, with uh, 11 other greater San Antonio area Calvary Chapel pastors today. And it's neat to hear what the Lord is doing in their churches and in their lives. Um, I want all of you to know that spread throughout uh, our our San Antonio, greater San Antonio area, including um, Castroville and uh, New Braunfels and, and all of the places in between. We have 12 Calvary Chapels. Uh, all of them committed to teaching the the word verse by verse, um, and uh, no matter where you are in this city, um, there's somebody uh, who you can trust to teach the Bible. Good guys. Here's our first question today. It's from George, and he said, "Should Christians call out false teachers by name, or would that be considered gossip?" You know, George, uh, our, the kids were in here as they are every day, Monday through Friday, uh, praying for the radio program. And a couple of them really like to look at the questions. And the first one, he looked at this question. He goes, he said, well, I don't know. What should we do? <laughs> and uh, George, I, I told him, I said, you know, it's a hard question because uh, the question depends entirely upon what your heart. Um, if somebody is a false teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then people need to be warned. Now, if it's just somebody you disagree with, and, and and that's a different thing. But when we're talking about heresy, we're talking about the prosperity gospel, we're talking about other other false teachings. Um, you know, people need to be warned. Uh, I typically do not, George, call out people by name. Uh, I answer questions on this radio program when people ask specifically about somebody. But uh, typically, um, um, I've found over the years in teaching, uh, especially those passages that deal with beware uh, of false prophets, uh, I've, I've learned that people sort of tune out. If I say a name and it's somebody they've been listening to, they'll just kind of get mad and tune me out. But if I just talk about the false teaching itself, then they'll have a tendency to listen and it will make an impact. Yeah, that that's not doesn't sound right kind of thing. Um, so um, it depends on the circumstance. Uh, all of the false teachers, George, have been warned. Uh, they've had people confront them personally, um, uh, yet they persist in, in teaching false doctrine. So uh, it's not gossip. 
uh, gossip, the definition of gossip is anything bad you say about somebody, even if it's true, uh, if your intent is to cause them harm. And I think when we're calling out false teaching, it's a different thing altogether. So, yeah, I think we ought to call them out. I think naming them by name sometimes is necessary, George, but most of the time I don't find that to be necessary. Uh, I just think we need to be sure our heart is right by God. You know, I think one of the things that we should do is be saddened by false teaching, not just get mad or get defensive, but to be saddened because there's a lot of people out there who aren't opening their Bibles, and if they would do that, they would have the discernment available to them uh, to know that something was was false or something is true. And and I just don't think we spend enough time or effort. So, yeah, sometimes you have to call them out by name. Um, gossip, I, I don't think so most of the time. It depends on your heart. So, George, I hope. I told him it was uh, the, the little boy. It was a hard question. It is. Corey says, Pastor Ron, what should I do when God feels distant? Um, Corey, um, going back to basics was Jesus' counsel. You will remember in his letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, um, Jesus commended them for some things that they were doing well. And here's what he said, but I have this one thing against you. You have forsaken or literally you've left, you've departed from your first love. And most of the time when uh, God feels distance, distant, uh, that's what happens. We, we've just sort of fallen out of love with Jesus. We've let the world consume us. Um, we we um, should check our hearts to make sure that there's no sin lurking around in there. Um, but, um, you know, walking with Jesus takes discipline. And something you got to work on every day. Now, if if what you mean by feeling distant, God feeling distant, is you don't get the goosebumps, that's not necessary. As we grow up in our faith, Corey, um, we don't need to walk by emotions or goosebumps. Uh, instead, we walk by faith. We depend on what we know. That doesn't mean um, it's always going to be exciting. It doesn't mean it's not always going to be a struggle. There's a an enemy who wants to destroy us. And so he's always going to be trying to separate us from the love of Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. And he has a long list there. And that's why we have to remember that. So most of the time, it's one of those things. It's either we've just drifted away from the Lord, we've fallen out of love with him, or there's sin in our heart. So the first thing is check your heart. The second thing to do, if that's not, sin isn't the case, but it's that you've just sort of drifted away, then you've got to take Jesus' advice. Here's what he told the church at Ephesus. He said to remember the heights from which you've fallen. Now, Corey, the way that would apply in your situation is you'd remember those times when you were in love with God. You remember those times when you couldn't wait to get up and talk to him in the morning. Couldn't wait to open your Bible. You remember what it was like. And then the second step is to repent. Just acknowledge that you drifting away is your fault. It's not his fault. I always tell the people here at Calvary Chapel that when you feel distant from God, it's not God who moved, it's you who moved. And when we do that, we need to repent. Lord, I let other things get between us. I've been spending time doing useless things. I've been spending time doing fun things. And Lord, I want to be with you. That's the most fun of all. I'm sorry, please forgive me. And he will. And then, of course, your fellowship, First John 1, 9 says, is instantly renewed. And the third thing he said is the practical thing. First is remember. The second is repent. The third thing is return. Do the things you did at first. Corey, go back to those times when you got up in the morning and you couldn't wait to open your Bible. Just devote that first part of the morning to Jesus. Expect Him by faith. Expect Him to speak to your heart. If you will do that, then those feelings will come back. And you'll love Him more than you ever loved Him. 
So just remember, God's never distant. We're the ones who move. It's never his fault. It's always his intention to be in intimate fellowship with us. Um, when we move, we're on our own. And I don't know about you, Corey, but I don't do very well when I'm on my own. Dallas says, I am a worship leader and would like some counsel about how to approach what I do. Um, I, I assume you mean as a worship leader, your, your, your job description, your function. Um, Dallas, I'm grateful that you asked. I'm not a worship leader. I don't. Uh, I'm the worship leader at Calvary Chapel San Antonio, but I don't play any instruments and I sing horribly. So um, it, it's not the same since you are. Let me say the first thing um, in terms of approaching what you do. And it is to truly be grateful for the gift that God has given you. You have no idea what a privilege it is, what an honor it is. I'm sure um, worship leaders, musicians, you know, can take for granted the gift from time to time. But um, never take for granted that gift. I don't have it. I would love to have it. When I pray every Sunday morning for our worship team, I pray for them by name, and I I just pray, Lord, that as they're standing on that stage, that they're overwhelmed by the honor and the privilege it is to lead people like me into the throne room of God through worship. The second thing I would tell you is make sure you're not performing. You have an audience of one. You're not singing to an audience to get an emotional response. I always get frustrated, Dallas, when, um, you know, people need the lights to be down for worship and create an atmosphere. No, 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 you don't have to do that. You have an audience of one. You're singing love songs to Jesus, meaning with all of your heart. Then I would tell you to do this. Check your heart to be sure that you can sing in good conscience the lyrics to those songs. very important the Holy Spirit will convict you if you give him the opportunity but remember all we need to do is repent so enjoy the gift, enjoy the privilege but also um, remember you're not performing Um, you're you're an audience of one Um, another important thing is make sure your team is walking with the Lord. What I'm telling you as a leader, you need to tell them. Those are really, really important things. Now I'm going to get more practical, Dallas. Um, One of the first things I told my worship pastor, we hired him and it's been a long time now, uh, I think 12 years, um, I just told him, I said, I want you to be quiet. You're up there to sing. You're up there to play music. You're up there to worship. You're not up there to talk. It is the most maddening thing to me when I hear worship leaders talking a lot or between songs or quote-unquote teaching. Just be quiet and sing. Play music and sing. That's your job. That's what worship is. And then when you are done with that, pray. But keep your prayers short. Make them honest and from the heart. But remember that your job is leading us into the throne room of God. It is an honor and a privilege. And I can't imagine anything better than that. Dallas, I mentioned this on the program yesterday, but but, uh, maybe you didn't hear. Um, In our second service, uh, some parents bring their kids, and just before the, the service over, they go get the kids out of the, the children's ministry. And we have two kids. Um, one of them looks like he's maybe four years old. The other one is probably seven, six or seven. And and uh, uh, they've been bringing guitars to church since they were little. They were the first the little tiny toy guitars. Now these boys, both of them, have real guitars. And they are playing. And so in our last worship song, the parents go get them. They put their guitars on and they stand really close to the stage and they're following the example of our worship leader. Can you imagine that? 
I told uh, Pastor Lane, who is our worship pastor here at Calvary Chapel, I told him, I said, you know, one day, I'm probably going to be dead, but but y- you'll be here. One day, you're going to see those kids, and they'll be on that stage leading worship to Jesus, and those seeds were sown right here watching you. So really enjoy the gift that God has given you. Thank you for the, the question, and God bless you as a worship leader. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, I told our producer the phone lines were quiet last week and kind of quiet yesterday, so um, we love to have your live calls and questions. This is an anonymous question who says, Am I guilty of adultery because I look at pornography? You're guilty of sin, Anonymous. Um, but you're referring to any man who's looked at a woman with lust in his heart is guilty of adultery. That was Jesus. Now, we have to remember in the Sermon on the Mount what Jesus was doing. You know, he's evangelizing to Jews, and he's telling them who he is, and he's giving them the reasons that they need to come to God through him. And in effect, what he's doing is he's elevating the, 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 the law to not just the letter of the law, but the spirit behind the law. And he tells them, look, you've heard that it is said, do not commit adultery, but I send you. He's raising the stakes. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, Anonymous, is simply this. Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, if you want to get to heaven without believing in me, this is how perfect you have to be. And of course, nobody can be that perfect. So he's not saying looking at pornography is the sin of adultery. It is the sin of sexual immorality. But we have to keep the context of the Sermon on the Mount there as well. Now, you don't say whether you're married or single, but let me tell you two things. If you're married, your sin is going to be discovered and you're going to end up breaking your wife's heart. And when she finds out, if she doesn't already know, the devil is going to tell her that it's her fault. If you were only prettier, if you're only thinner, if you're only, and you can fill in the blank, then he wouldn't have to look at that stuff. See, that's the way the enemy works. So, Anonymous, if you're married, by partaking of pornography, you are harming, causing harm to the one woman that you promised God you would protect, that you would honor, that you would cherish. And it's really important that you understand that. So yes, it's a sin, not adultery, but it is a sin. Now, if you're not married and you're looking at pornography, well, then what God is learning about you, remember, he knows everything, but what he's learning about you is that he can't trust you with a woman that he loves. I've had people tell me, but Pastor Ron, what am I supposed to do for my sexual satisfaction when when I'm not married? The answer is accept the gift of celibacy from God and honor him because he will bring somebody into your life, but not until he can trust you with her. So this is really an important distinction to be made. You are going to be alone a lot longer until God can't, as long as God can't trust you with somebody that he really cares about. So, stop it. Here is a question from Alan. Um, My question is about Matthew 16. I want to know if Peter was the first pope. Um, no, the, 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 the words, you know, um, in, uh, you're, you will be called Peter. The word is in Greek is a little tiny pebble. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the word for rock there is this massive boulder. So what we have to do, Ellen, is go back to what does the, the, the big rock refer to And that's a statement of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's the rock upon which the church is built. 
So Matthew 16 doesn't declare Peter is the first pope. I know that's what the Catholic Church changes. But I want you to think about something. The Roman Catholic Church, as we understand it, in the early church, the word Catholic means universal. So when they talked about the, the universal church, uh, it, would, it would be the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, just the Church of Jesus Christ. But the Roman Catholic Church began in 313 A.D., Peter was dead for a really long time by 313 A.D. So it's impossible that he could have been the first pope. Now what they do is just sort of twist the scripture and and tradition throughout the centuries is maintain that, that they can trace the pope's lineage all the way back to Peter. Um, but that's just tradition that it's contradicted by the word of God. So Alan Peter was not the first pope. Something to consider. Peter was married. Catholic Church pope can't be married. But all you have to do is know your history a little bit. Catholics, if they're honest, look at the Bible. Say, nope, couldn't have been Peter. So Peter was the tiny pebble. The statement of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said some suggestions. And then he looked right at the disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that was the massive rock upon which the church was built. You know, Alan, I can... pronounce a believer simply by what they believe and in whom they believe. And still today on that massive rock, that statement of faith about who Jesus is, still today the church is being built. So thank you very, very much. Got a few minutes left in this half of the program. Here is a question from Josh. These philosophical questions. He wants to know, Pastor, have you thought about what will happen if what you believe proves not to be true? Um, Josh, obviously, intellectually, I've thought about that. I mean, there's an enemy who's always trying to cause doubt. Um, but but the minute the thought comes into my head, I know who the source of that thought is. So, uh, I just take that thought captive. It, 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 there's no possibility. So here's here's what you have to decide, Josh. With all of the evidence about who Jesus is, what he did, all the evidence that proves that he was killed, he didn't stay dead, just as predicted. you got to wrestle with what do you believe about this? Now, if Jesus isn't true, the Apostle Paul says if Christ has not been raised, then we Christians would be pitied more than all people. We're foolish to believe. We're, we're foolish to consider um, even spending time in church or reading our Bibles. And the empty tomb, Josh, proves beyond any doubt at all that Jesus is who he said he was. So I don't worry about what I believe not proving to be true because that's impossible the evidence is overwhelming and all we have to do is look at the evidence and believe it so have you thought about and your question cynical so have you thought about what would happen to you if you not believing in Jesus proves to be false Eternity is at stake, so it's a question, Josh, that has to be considered really, really seriously. Uh, i got just a little over a minute. I can't do that question yet. Um, Veronica wants to know, was there death of any kind before the fall? And what was the first example of physical death? Um, before the fall, there was, there was no death. Um, um, because sin hadn't entered the world 
Uh, but Veronica, the first example of death came right after the fall, uh, physical death, because what we see is Adam and Eve, who had been hiding from God because they were naked uh, and they were ashamed, uh, we see them, after trying to cover themselves with a fig leaf, we see them next um, covered, their, their private parts covered by animal skins. And an animal died because of Adam's sin. Now, Adam had been given dominion over the animals. They were pets to him. Can you imagine what it was like when that first animal had to die? The horror of the sounds, the blood. Sin costs. So thanks, Veronica. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday program, 340-9585. Here's a question from William. This is the one I couldn't answer in one minute. So, William says, would you please explain the doctrine of original sin? Um, William, simply put, when Adam sinned, um, we inherited his sin. Uh, We inherited his sin. He is our federal head, Roman says. He is the representative of all mankind because he was first. The first Adam, we inherited sin. The second Adam, Jesus, uh, a type of Adam, uh, through him we inherited the forgiveness of sin. So uh, original sin simply says that because he sinned and we inherited sin nature, we therefore are people who sin. We're sinners. And since all sin separates us from God, there has to be an answer for that sin. Now, this doesn't mean uh, that we are being punished for uh, Adam's sin. It just means that we're being held to account for our own sin but we don't have any control over sin. I mean, as unbelievers, um, the, the fact that we sin, John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that when we're born, we're condemned already, um, and we're condemned because we're sinners. And that's what original sin is, and because we are sinners, there needs to be an answer, and the answer is Jesus. That's why only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. Only born-again Christians, William have the answer for original and, I would add, continuing sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And uh, we simply inherited our nature to sin from from Adam. Good question. Thank you. Let's go now to Dale from Jonestown on line one. Dale, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Um, I've heard you say in the past that when... We're absent of our bodies. We go to be in the presence of the Lord, and we'll just be transfixed on on Christ, and you know, not caring about this world at all. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't disagree with that, but I'm just curious about the tribulation saints that are martyred and how they're crying out for vengeance, or how long will it be until we're avenged? Yes. Uh, d- different different situation completely, Dale, and here's why. When we find the tribulation martyrs, we find them under the altar of God. Now remember, these are people who were killed during the Great Tribulation. Uh, they're not in the presence of Jesus. They're waiting, and from their perspective, remember the book of Revelation is very Jewish. It's sort of a completion of Jewish eschatology. Um, when they When they're... 
under the altar. They're crying out for vengeance. How long, O God? Uh, Because they want the completion. They want the, the fullness of blessing. Peter calls being with Jesus the goal of our salvation. So in Revelation, those who are martyred during great tribulation, yeah, they're interested in 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 receiving their glorified bodies. They're interested in being with Jesus, but they will have to wait until the end of the great tribulation for you and for me. Um, will be in the presence of Jesus at the wedding banquet of the Lord. And when we're there, um, you know, the, the focus will be on the festival, the feast. We're going to be there to marry Jesus. It's when when our marriages are consummated with the Lord, when we are exchanging these, these earthly sinful bodies, exchanged for glorified physical resurrected bodies, um, that's when we become His. And, and the whole time, and, and this, is, this is just the way my mind thinks, Dale, the whole time we're there, Jesus, I think, is going to be letting us know that the time is coming soon, the time is short. We're going back, and we're going to go back with him, and we're going to get all of those tribulation martyrs. They're going to be glorified along with us, um, but it has to be at the end when Jesus has um, regained that which was lost, and, of course, the innocence and the purity of the... The earth uh, is what was lost. Um, um, mankind now having been reconciled to God, uh, people will have a choice to believe. Uh, and again, the Jewish focus in the book of Revelation has to be maintained because when Jesus comes back, they're going to look upon the one they've slain. And one-third of the Jews who are alive at that time are going to mourn like never before and, and, and know that Jesus was the one that they missed and they, they put him to death. And then um, they're going to be part of the church. And in the rest of, of our time, um, we're going to be redeeming the earth, getting ready for the thousand-year millennium on earth. Does that help you? It does. And it raises another question. Do you think okay. that we'll have the, the capacity to be impatient or have anticipation mm-hmm. for, Lord, when are we going to go back? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, First Corinthians 13 says that now we know in part, then we will know as we are known. In other words, we'll, we'll know fully. And remember, the moment we get our, our heavenly bodies, Dale, we have no sin nature at all. So our, our only desire will be, to, will be to, to be with Jesus, to be like him. And to learn from him, and, and that'll carry on forever and ever and ever. But, but I don't think there'll be an impatience. Um, or can you imagine you're at a party, and Jesus says, "Well, we're going to go soon." I don't think any of us are going to say, "Well, when I, I, I want to go." Um, but when he says it's time to go, that's what we're going to want to do. We're going to be with him, and it's, it's amazing. He doesn't need us, but we're going to be with him. But. Um, yeah, I do, I, all of the things that we think about here, will we worry, will we be afraid, will we be tempted by sin, uh, none of those things can be true because we will have completely lost our nature to sin at the transformation of our bodies. Now we struggle with it because we're still flesh and we still have this, this ugly flesh that calls to us. But once that's gone, once we're in the presence of the Lord, no more will we have any inclination to do anything but to worship, to praise, and obey the Lord. Thank you, Dale. I love those kind of questions. Dale would tell us all, look up, for our redemption draws near. Great question. Thank you, Dale. Rita asked this question. She said, why do Christians believe we are bad people who need to be saved? We all make mistakes, but we're not defined by our mistakes. Rita, the, the wording of your question is so formed by the world that we live in. The self-esteem culture, yeah, nobody's perfect, but we're not defined by our mistakes. We're made in the image of God. No, we're made as sinners. Yes, we were created. Mankind was created in the image of God. And there are certain things that that image describes. But... Um, the truth is we're all going to answer for our sins unless Jesus is your Lord and Savior. So we Christians believe we're bad people because the evidence is overwhelming. Now, really, here's what you've got to do. Stop listening to Oprah, and I'm, I'm using her generically because there's all kinds of messages out there. 
you know, live your truth, be your best self, have self-esteem, be proud, and instead objectively look at your life. Here's the truth, and now I'm, I don't know you, Rita, so this is my life. Everything that I did before I was saved was terrible. You know, I had some good moments. But the truth is, I sinned every day. I sinned continually. If you think people are basically good at heart, read the newspaper. Turn on the news. The evidence is overwhelming. We're not good. We lie just because it's easier. We, we gossip about people. We have jealousies and envy and rivalries. and There's nothing good about those things. Now, here's the neat thing, Rita. I'm not defined by any of those sins. I, you call them mistakes. I call them sins. I'm now defined by the person of Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he or she, Ron or Rita, is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's who I'm defined by now. What you've got to do is recognize that the only way to get to heaven, Rita, is to be perfect. And since you're not, admittedly, you say we all make mistakes. Jesus died to cover those sins. And we can't do anything about it. I have a friend who keeps saying, it is what it is. I don't like that saying, but truth is, I'm not a good person. In my flesh, the Bible says, is no good thing. Paul says, there's none righteous, no one who seeks God. But you see, when Jesus reaches out for us and we surrender our heart to him, then our past is wiped out and his perfection, his righteousness is given to us. So Rita, we believe we're sinners because we are. Every one of us is defined in some way by, by people, by our sins. And one of the things that we learn is not to do those things over and over again. Jesus frees us from the need to do those things. So Rita, considered that. Let's go to Reuben from Seguin on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, bless you, Pastor Ron. Thank uh, you, Reuben. Thank you, welcome. Um, I just have a quick question about prayer. Um, uh, I take care of my dad. And I've, mm-hmm. I've been taking care of him for a very long time. And he's 78 years old, and he's, you know, he's disabled as well. And uh, he's, he knows, I mean, he's a, he's a Christian. He's given his life to God, and, 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 you know. But one thing that is hard for him is to pray. He, he um, his mind, uh, I don't want to confess anything, but his mind just doesn't work as well as it should. And mm-hmm. he can't seem to pray. And so um, for the past couple of years, I've been, you know, praying in um, in his stead, you know. Like when we go to sleep, when we wake up in the morning, um, we we pray together. And, and, and I ask him to pray. He goes, well, I don't know what to say. And I say, well, okay, Dad, just, uh, just listen to me and just agree with what I say. And then... Uh, it should be okay. Uh, anyways, uh, over a conversation over the weekend, someone mentioned that that uh, everyone individually has to pray to God, uh, or else that God's never going to hear them. So my question is this: in the case of my dad and me praying for him, will God honor my prayer for praying for him? Although in his physical state of mind, he cannot pray on his own. Um, I, I want to be careful with my answer. You you cannot pray in his stead. So um, okay. you, you can pray for your father, and you are, and you should. But 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 you can't really put words in his mouth. Now you can give him an example of what prayer is, Reuben. But but the okay. prayer needs to come from him. Now, having said that, um, you know the spirit groans. Uh, the spirit intercedes on our behalf. And, well, I, I want you to try to encourage your dad, keep encouraging him to pray. And he says, I don't know what to say. He says, just tell Jesus how you feel. Do you love him? Yeah. He says, yes. He tell him, Jesus, I love you. Are you grateful? Yes. Say, I thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. 
And again, remember, Jesus knows your dad intimately. And, um, you know, the, the, the fact that he is uh, deficient mentally or emotionally in some regard, God knows all that. But just tell him to talk to Jesus. Dad, don't you have any question that you want to ask Jesus or don't you have anything you want to say to him? And, and just let him work it out and pray that the Spirit of God would come over him. But God's hearing your prayers for him, um, but you also want to help him. Amen. And his prayers, he's going to be helped by the Holy Spirit. So just make it really simple for him. It's just conversation. And uh, a lot of people with with uh, bad pasts and, uh, you know, well, I, I can't, I don't know what to t- Just open your mouth and talk. Okay. And God will make it easy. The Holy Spirit will help him. But but your, your dad's cared for. Your dad is loved. Your dad is protected. Um, what we're trying to do is help him enjoy the time he has here on the earth with the Lord yes. a, a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. So it's just dad telling you love him, telling you thankful and and um, um, tell him to just talk to him while you're gone, not not in front of you while you're gone. Just talk to him, and pretty soon it'll it'll come a little bit easier. Thank you so okay. much for that. Okay, Question, God Ruben, real quick: any any rescheduled yeah. date for your surgery? <clears throat> no, sir. Uh, uh, the surgeon wants because uh, I think I told you that my blood sugars were high. Yes, I think I told you that. Okay, he wants my blood sugars to be consecutively under 200 for okay. uh, four weeks, and uh, he, he is booked up until April. So okay. um, I'm looking at uh, April. I don't know when in April, but I definitely will keep you posted. Okay, thank you, and that's what we'll be praying for, Ruben. God bless you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Gerald. Two questions, actually. The first one is, why doesn't God make himself more clear? The second is, why is the Bible so hard to understand? Um, Gerald, by making himself more clear, I can only guess that you mean, why doesn't he show himself to you? Why doesn't um, he present himself so that everybody knows he's real? Um, God wants us to believe what he says. I mean, if, if God showed up as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on a horse, we're all going to believe him. But, but what God wants you to do is, by faith, looking at evidence, he wants you to understand that God is real, that he is who he said he was. And I think you're going to find that Jesus makes himself very, very clear. If you open the Bible, Gerald, he says he's God over and over and over and over. I don't know how much more clear he could make it. Now, when people usually ask this question, it indicates that they're not really reading their Bibles. You ask, why is the Bible so hard to understand? There's so much in the Bible that is easy to understand. I, I understand they're hard things. There weren't, there wouldn't have to be a show like this one. But I think the reason the hard things trip us up is because we're not being obedient in the easy things. When God says, for example, Gerald, flee from sexual immorality. That's not hard to understand. When God says to love others, that's not hard to understand. When God says don't be drunk, that's not hard to understand. So here's my suggestion. Gerald, when you come across something in the Bible that you understand clearly, do that without worrying about any of the things you don't understand. As you are obedient in those areas that you do understand, then he's going to give you more clarity on the things that you don't understand. And that's just doing what the Word says. I don't find the Bible difficult at all. I mean, there's some difficult passages. But, you know, the more I obey the things that are clear... I mean, it's almost like God is saying, read my lips. As long as I do those things, then the clarity I have is more than I need. So do what God tells you to do that you do understand. You know, Gerald, uh, I was sharing last Friday night here at Calvary Chapel, um, um, 
we were in First Peter chapter three, the first six verses, and um, that's a, a chapter that those verses are the verses that literally saved my life. As Paula was praying for me for those thirteen years, um, those are the verses that she kept as her constant companion. If any of you are married to an unbeliever, here's here's what to do. And Paula believed him, and she lived him. That was really really hard. And Paula certainly wasn't a mature Christian at the time. But here's what she learned. With all the questions she had, with all the turmoil in our lives caused by me, she was reading the Bible one day in Malachi, and he said, I hate divorce. And she understood that. She was being pressured in a nice way by people that love me, my family, to divorce me. And she read it and she got it. She didn't like it. At that point, a divorce would have been the easiest thing for her. But she said, I understand. And then God spoke to her heart. He said, if you're a believer, you have to love what I love and hate what I hate. I hate divorce and I love Ron. So will you let me love Ron through you? And for 13 years she was faithful to that you know what else after those 13 years Paula found out she understood a whole bunch of things so Gerald God couldn't be any more clear the heavens declare the glory of God day after day they pour forth speech there is no nation or language where they're not understood all we have to do is have an ear to hear and we will hear everything that we need to hear Thank you for the question. Here's a question from Robert. He said, uh, Pastor Ron, you said this week, and this would be last week because I got this question last week, you said this week that the woman caught in adultery was not Mary Magdalene. Why do some people believe it was her? And Robert, the only reason that people believe it was her is because it's Catholic tradition. There's no evidence at all. In fact, the, the evidence seems to me to be overwhelming to the contrary. Um, but that's been the traditional Catholic teaching throughout the centuries. And so uh, they just identify her as Mary Magdalene and, and nobody questions it. But I can assure you, Robert, the woman caught in adultery was not Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene had her own problem. She was uh, demon-possessed. Seven demons were in her. If Mary Magdalene had been the woman caught in the act of adultery, when they apprehended her, can you imagine the strength that she would have demonstrated when those seven demons rose up to resist? So there is no possible way that this was Mary Magdalene. And I think what we need to do, Robert, is throw away any and all traditions that contradict the Word of God. Tradition in and of itself is not bad, but any tradition that is not founded upon the, the, the Word of God is a tradition that is harmful. So, no, the woman caught in adultery was not identified, and she was not Mary Magdalene. Shannon says, uh, which one is true between Calvinism and Arminianism? And Shannon, I would say to you, both of them have elements of truth, but both positions are way, way, way out of balance. Let me explain. Uh, and I've only got a few minutes, so I'll do the, the quick explanation. The, um, the Calvinist believes that, that God chooses who's going to be saved, and he chooses who's going to go to hell. And once God chooses you, there's nothing you can do to lose that salvation. You will persevere if you're truly the elect. The Arminian believes that you can get saved, you can lose your salvation, and get saved again. Or you can walk away from your salvation. God gave you a free will, and you want to walk away from that free will, He'll honor the choice that you make. And so both of those are unbiblical extremes. I always say that the, the truth is always found in the balance of Scripture. So if you go right in the middle of those two positions, and if your systematic theology is biblical theology, then you're going to find the answer to your question. 
Yes, God does choose who's going to go to heaven. But he makes a choice based on what he knows about our choice. We're going to choose him back. The Calvinist is right. The true believer will persevere to the end. The Arminian says, my salvation's up to me. And both of those positions are extreme. They're wrong. Truth is, neither one of those things is completely true. There are elements of truth in both. And the real truth is found in the middle. Shannon, um, I don't know if you uh, have access to a computer to read uh, or to to look at uh, or listen to the studies I've done. But um, um, Romans chapter 9 um, the study I did, uh, it's available on a website for free, and I do a pretty detailed um, explanation of, of what election is all about, um, Calvinism and Arminianism. The balance is always in the middle. Time for one more question. This is from Eric. He wants to know, am I familiar with the Jesus Seminar? And what are my thoughts? Eric, uh, I'm I'm intimately um, familiar with the Jesus Seminar. When I was a brand new believer, this is something that goes back uh, to the 70s. Oh, I don't have time. I'll save this one for tomorrow. But I am familiar with it. And uh, I'll I'll answer this one on uh, tomorrow's program at the top. Thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.